Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. We're signing the permission slips and such for those that are going to the National Youth Convention so they can get all the students that are going registered. And so please be mindful of that. If you're on that, you understand that uh, they did real well with their car wash and their bake sale, uh, being able then to cover the expense of those that are going uh, to NYC. And so appreciate everybody's participation, everyone's participation in that. We're grateful for that. Amen tonight. Amen. Also, this coming Saturday, uh, if you are a man and you feel like you can have the ability to put up tile, that's really the main thrust of stuff that needs to be done primarily is putting up tile. I'm saying somewhere around 9 to 1. Or if you got less time, give me an hour, whatever you got. About 9 to 1, see if we can get some more tile up. Start working on the other half, getting tile up and such. Brother Fred's been working on nights. And Sunday afternoons, he's got the cabinet doors up on the cabinets. He installed one of the fans on this side and such. So he's been doing stuff. Uh, I don't think he was in here when he seen that he got the volunteer of the month for this month. I tried to tell him he already has it. He already has it. He already has it. But uh, we got our countertop on back there loosely. Trying to get a few questions answered and John should be able to get here then soon to get that all, yeah, turned the way that it's going to turn. <laughs> I can't even really describe it to you, but nonetheless, so excited about that, excited about that. Also, I'm just going to make an announcement here just so that everybody's not taken off guard, but this coming Sunday, we'll be back into pre-COVID seating. You say, we're already like that. No, if you remember before COVID, I had like the last four or five pews roped off to kind of condense and make everybody kind of force your movement to be together. And so that's going to be again on Sunday. Going to start forcing your movement to be more concentrated and together because I think it impacts our services when we concentrate those that are here in a more shallow space. And listen, I'm not doing anything different than what uh, people that have uh, uh, theatric departments and other things in such of that manner do. And uh, so we're just doing that concert. That way it don't look like a shotgun. It looks more like a rifle shot. All right. And uh, so we're going to do that uh, between now and Sunday. So you know those that are not here don't know. There'll be ones like, oh! but you'll be able to tell them because you have this information. All right, you'll be able to help them out. I'm going to turn to the book of Esther. I paid attention to things that people said they would like to learn, and we had two hits on Esther for uh, going through the book and two hits on her as a character, so that makes her really four hits in reality. And so we're going to look at for the next several weeks the book of Esther. And so, uh, as you know, every beginning of a series is always the first time is kind of an introduction, an overview of everything, kind of hitting the tops of the trees. So I want to go to Esther 4 and verse 14 as a starting point. And I chose this verse tonight so people isn't nervous about me just starting without a scripture. And then I also chose this because this is probably one of the better known verses of the book of Esther and could in many regards even be 
the key verse for the book of Esther. And so we're going to look at this today. Uh, how many how many knows in, knows anything or heard or remember any of the storyline of the book of Esther? Several here that do. And uh, so we want to look at that and understand as we go along, it's not always what you think it was. All right? Amen. Verse number 14, it's the only verse I'm reading. That is right now. And uh, don't expect that for the next several weeks. All right? Esther 4 and verse 14. For if thou altogether, this is just kind of preface this, this is Mordecai speaking to, to Esther. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And probably one of the most famous phrases, conferences are built around this and entitled this. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I don't have no flamboyant title. A lot of times my first one is just introduction because that's what this is. It's the flyover over the book of Esther. Let's pray that the Lord would touch our hearts afresh. Father, I love you tonight. God, I praise you and I worship you. You are the King of glory. God, as we start this journey, Lord, for the next several weeks, God, and we, Lord, walk through the book of Esther. God, I pray, Lord, you enlighten our minds and our hearts. Give us understanding, Lord. God, let there be things there, Lord, that we can apply to our life. I know there will be. These are the words of life. It's a living word. God, I pray, Lord, applicable to living people. I pray, Jesus, tonight, God, touch us anew, Lord, through your word. will not fail to thank you for it. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen of the church. Say amen. Amen. You may be seated in Jesus' name. <clears throat> For those that really want to know, and dating dating a, a book or when a book is written sometimes can be very uh, difficult throughout the word of the Lord. But uh, Esther is dated uh, late to 5th to 3rd century B.C. Some say it's dated no later than 350 B.C. The author of Esther is not really known we really don't know it's not like uh, one of the epistles of the new testament scripture that says i such and such am writing to you and it just kind of tells us quite directly uh, the author the author of esther is really not known uh, some speculate because of them knowing much about persian life and jewish life that possibly it was mordecai or maybe uh, ezra others even claimed that the possibility of being nehemiah nonetheless the author has taken uh, the details of Esther's story and have told them in a very meaningful literary way. It has all of the components, Esther does in my estimation, and I'm a reader, so I should know, has all the components of a good story, a good story. It has a overarching problem, although there might be sub-problems, but there's an overarching problem in this story, which, of course, with any good story, uh, creates tension and result of the solution, how that affects everybody's lives. And so the book of Esther is along a good storyline. For that matter, all the ladies say, here I am. The book of Esther underscores the impact of women in many regards. In, in many different areas through the book of Esther, the impact of women is seen. From the very beginning in the first couple of chapters, whenever we read about the former queen, the queen that was queen prior to Esther, Vashti, she's a woman, right? <laughs> and she responds 
maybe in a difficult way, at least according to King Ahasuerus, to him about her coming before all of these people that are gathered together and there's this party going on. And so her refusal uh, is noted. And as a result of that, and we'll get into this in weeks to come, possibly they, they, they think that what she and how she responded could have a effect on every household throughout the Persian Empire. And so there is then the impact of a woman through Vashti. We also then understand that there is Haman's wife, whose name is Zeresh, and it is she, even through her encouraging words to Haman, she encourages him and, and even gives some uh, advice about maybe he should build those gallows for Mordecai to be hanged upon. And so there again is the impact of a woman found in the Scripture. And then, of course, not to mention the, the main heroine herself, Esther, all throughout the book, uh, influencing the kingly power of Persia to what he says of his own words, I'll give you even to half the kingdom. Now, there is the impact of a woman when a man's willing to give half of what he has, although there are days that some of us may feel like we've already done that. Amen. And so these women throughout the book of Esther are very strong personalities in the book of Esther. Esther, in some regards, is like the character of Joseph and also like the character of Daniel in the light that both Joseph and Daniel and Esther they all served in a foreign land or a land that was strange to them. Joseph, of course, serving in Egypt, Daniel serving in Babylon, and Esther serving in Persia. And so there is their likenesses. Although when it comes to Joseph and Daniel, neither of them chose to be in Egypt and, and Babylon, respectively, but Esther did choose to be in Persia. Herself. Much of the story of the book of Esther, as you read from the first chapter to the last chapter, much of the story, and this is a literary device, how the authors put things together, much of the story is centered around banquets of some sort in the book of Esther. We start out in the beginning that King Nehazarus is having a couple feasts and there's the 180 days, it seems, and the seven days and he has a couple of feasts, a couple of banquets. Vashti herself is having a banquet. And then later in the book of Esther, we see Esther holds a couple of dinners or banquets both times for the king and for Haman to come and feast and eat with her. And there's some things that take place place between those two banquets that are just life-changing for the book of Esther and then at the very end the whole celebration of what we call in English Purim that whole celebration of that feast is a celebration of two days of feasting and banqueting and so from from start to middle to end a lot of the storyline of the book of Esther is centered around feasting and banqueting and eating and you know, merry men of heart and so on and so forth. And then in Esther chapter number 6 is really was probably the pivotal point of the whole book of Esther. The pivotal point in the book of Esther was probably the night that the king cannot sleep. And so he has the chronicles come and, and read to him. And right before chapter number 6, the ending of chapter 5 tells us what, Mordecai, or what Haman is up to at that point in time. He's building gallows, and then we go to chapter 6, and the king can't sleep. I always think that's interesting. I wonder if there's some type of correlation that the king can't sleep because somebody is up making gallows. I don't know, but it is interesting to consider and think about. In our Bible, the book of Esther uh, follows 
Ezra, and then Nehemiah, and then there's Esther, then you go on into Job. However, it's chronological placement, right? Because we know several of the, like, uh, the minor prophets and the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those, it just, the Bible isn't just laid out in chronological order. Uh, there's some, I think Brother Mason this year is reading the chronological Bible, uh, but nonetheless, the things are not just laid out in chronological order. A lot of those prophets and a lot of the minor prophets get shoved back down into like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, when other kings ruled. And so the book of Esther chronologically, its placement is between Ezra chapter number 6 and Ezra chapter number 7. Between those two chapters really lies the storyline of the book of Esther. In chapter number 6 of Ezra is whenever they have come back from captivity and Zerubbabel has been very instrumental in constructing, reconstructing, I might say, the temple in Jerusalem. And it's after that we have the storyline of the book of Esther. But prior to chapter number 7 of Ezra, where there's the arrival of more people that's returning to Jerusalem that have been in different areas of Babylon and hereabout, there's more returnees that come with Ezra in chapter number 7. Between those two chapters, chronologically, falls the book of, e uh, of Esther. Don't get Ezra and Esther mixed up. Amen. Israel had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. We read of this in Scripture. Many of the prophets prophesied of this day that would come, and it did come. They're carried away into Babylonian captivity for 70 years, just as in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied that it would take place, though no one listened to what he had to say. What he said came to pass. So, uh, word of warning to everybody, when the prophet speaks and you're not paying attention, it's going to happen. All right, and so it came to pass. And so as he prophesied concerning these things, he spoke of, and Isaiah spoke of as well, that there was going to be this man, a king, a king of Persia by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus would be instrumental in giving a decree for the Jewish people who had been in Babylonian captivity because the Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians. And so this King Cyrus, this king over Persia, he is now going to give a decree for the Jewish people that have been captivity, that they are allowed to return home to Jerusalem and Judea and these areas, and that they are allowed to rebuild their temples. matter of fact, they're, they're encouraged to rebuild their temple. They're encouraged to rebuild their city. And that decree from King Cyrus would, uh, in essence, end the Babylonian captivity for the nation of Israel. But here's the thing. They had lived 70 years in Babylon. 70 years they had lived there. And in many regards, their lives had a certain level of freedom. Though they were in captivity, they had a certain level of freedom living in Babylon. And as a matter of fact, they had a certain level of prosperity that they gained while living in Babylon as well. And so with that being the case... Whenever the decree is given by this Persian king, Cyrus, that you all go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your city, your town, and your walls, we understand that not every Jew that went to captivity came home from captivity. There were some that did not return. Although the door was swung open wide for them to return, some did not. They had found, if you will, a new place of living in Babylon with a certain level of freedom and with some prosperity. 
we could say it like this. There were some that grew comfortable in Babylon. They grew comfortable in Babylon. And so there are really just a relatively few people that returned to Jerusalem when given the chance. And so here's, here's the Esther story. Fifty years after the king of Persia, Cyrus, gave the decree allowing the Jews to return, Esther story appears and it records the story of those Jews who chose not to return. Might I say, that includes her and Mordecai who chose not to return. And, be, and we look in the history of Scripture. Scripture itself tells us there are about three or so different deportations from Babylon back to Jerusalem over a period of time. But again, most Jews did not return to Jerusalem. If you'll go with me uh, tonight to Ezra chapter number 1, I'm sure it'll be on the screen. But in Ezra chapter number 1 and verse, verses 1 through 6, this kind of gives the storyline of King Cyrus given the decree. Just look at it for a moment, if you will, for our purposes tonight of an overview of Esther, although we're reading from Ezra, okay? Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So it's telling us what's, what's about ready to be spoken here was already prophesied in Jeremiah. And that is true. You can find the prophecy of Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah 24, also Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, gives forth this prophecy of the people returning from Babylon and, and that it might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now that's interesting, okay? Because what we have is God working in the life of a pagan king. God, do, Here's the thing. God works his work in the life of the world, not just through apostolic people. He can use anybody. Even he can use people in their mistakes and work it for his favor. And so he stirs, God stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, this king of Persia, that he would make this proclamation. This is just not a Persian king idea. This is God pulling levers and pushing buttons on the Persian king. That he would be compelled to give a decree that the Jews could go back home to Jerusalem to make this proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying God stirred up Cyrus to give such a decree. Now here's the awesome thing. This, this is God. We, when we talk about our lives belong to him and they're for him, it really is whether you're saved or unsaved. He can take your mistakes, your failures and everything and he can work it. You remember what Joseph said? He said the devil meant it for my bad but God... It looked, it, on the surface, this, look, this thing was tanking. But God used something that was horrible and used it for the positioning of, of Joseph, right? In Isaiah, you read Isaiah, and you can read this in Isaiah 44, 28. Isaiah speaks this name Cyrus that would be the Lord's anointed, the Lord's shepherd, because he's going to do some things that the Lord's going to have him to do that he isn't necessarily any wiser to. He thinks this is me. But it's so interesting because in Isaiah 44, whenever he names the name Cyrus, he does that 150 years before Cyrus is even born. God knows, folks. 
150 years before the man is born, he is already prophesying what this man, yet unnamed by his parents, but already named by God, man, is going to do. So don't think for a moment that after the man is alive, God can't stir up the heart of this king. The Bible says in verse number 2, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people, right? He's speaking to the captives of Babylon because now he has Babylon because the Persians overtook the Babylonians. Who is there among all of you of his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. He's urging them. Let them go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Go up, do it. The plea then... Uh, of Cyrus being stirred by the Lord is all of you folks need to go home. All of you folks need to go back to Jerusalem. Build up your temple. Get your offerings and sacrifices going again. Build your walls. Put up your gates. Repopulate the city. Go home and do this. Look at verse number 4. And whosoever, he says, whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, so he already picking up on somebody's not going to go home. Some of y'all is going to stay where you've been sojourning for the past 70 years or where you've been born. Some of them were born in captivity. Zerubbabel was one of them, born in captivity. He said, whoever remaineth, uh, uh, remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold. He's saying, if you're not going back home to build the temple, then I want you to help furnish some materials for it. So let it, let it, let it, the, his place help him with silver and with gold. I'll rewind and then fast forward, okay? And with goods and with beasts besides the free will offering of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So if you're not going, I want you to contribute. I want you to help in some way. Verse number five, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God has raised. Or other versions, God has stirred. So God has stirred Cyrus, and he's stirring the hearts of some of these people to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And so what's amazing about this is this. So God has raised up, the Spirit of God has raised up some people to go back to Jerusalem. As I said, other versions said that he stirred the hearts of some of the people. He stirred hearts of people to do this. So one of two things happened then, whenever we think of Esther. And when we think of Mordecai, one of two things have happened. And that is this. God did not stir Esther and Mordecai's heart, or he did, and they ignored it. All we know about Esther, of course, is what we find by and large in the book of Esther. All we know about anybody, for that matter, is what we piece together from what they do and from what other people say about them in reality. And so many are familiar, of course, with the story and the character of Esther. People view her, this is all time said, and again, I'm, I'm not here to destroy every kingdom that we ever built up and thought process about Esther, but I am going to uh, poke a few areas and prod a few areas of your thinking, maybe perhaps about Esther. Because many, when we think of Esther, there's like, here is, here is this lady. The lady that was in the right place at the right time for God's purposes. 
However, I believe just as arguably is this lady who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Not to mention we learn in Scripture that for a good period of time she kept her Jewish identity hidden until she felt pressed it was necessary she should reveal it. Because Esther and Mordecai are by their genealogies Jews. But they were not practicing Jews. But nonetheless, God used her and Mordecai's decision to stay in Babylon and the Persian Empire where they were for the benefit of the Jewish people. Again, we all say she was at the right place at the right time. Not necessarily. But God even used maybe a bad decision for his purposes. Amen. Let me say this. God can use your bad, your negative, your flubs up and flub up some mistakes and turn them in something good for his purpose. That's not saying I was right. That's saying God is very good. God is very good. We recall the same words as we read in our, in our little text here tonight that Mordecai said to her, who, know, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, this is, this is just pastor tonight, okay? And whoever else is out there, love y'all. All right? We oftentimes use this at conferences and other things. And what we relate to is... Who knoweth that thou art come to the kingdom? Many times we're speaking about the kingdom of God. That's the way that we go about it. You have come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. Listen, Mordecai is not talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of Persia. Hmm? And the time is this, is that there is a threat against the Jewish people for them to be annihilated, for them to be destroyed from the face of the earth. We'll say, well, there you go, Brother McGee. Let's pause. Remember why the Jewish people are threatened. Why they're wanting to be snubbed from the very face of the earth. Primarily, what starts that snowball rolling is Mordecai, another Jew who stayed in Babylon, disrespects Haman, an official in Persia, and that disrespect then encouraged Haman to want to slaughter all the Jews. Now listen, let's look at it more like this. Not so much disrespect toward a person as it is an office. You, you, we, we dislike and like different people to come and go out of the presidency of the United States. But the office of the president holds a certain level of respect that we should give it regardless of who's serving in it. Regardless of me being a Christian and them not. Me living in this world and in this context, the office of the President of the United States deserves a certain level of respect. In the kingdom of Persia, the office that Haman was serving in deserved, whether you was Persian, Jew, or whoever, a certain level of respect. Whether you agreed with the man or not, 
But all of this began to spiral downhill because of a disrespect, amen, to some hierarchy. And so had, listen to me, think about this for a moment. What would have happened had Mordecai and Esther both, what would have happened if instead of staying, both of them returned to Jerusalem? This whole debacle with Haman may have been a total, might not even been an issue. Therefore, Haman never going to the king to say, hey, there's a certain people among us. It may have never spun into orbit had they returned home when the invitation was provided and the urging was provided for them to go home. But they stayed, and so destruction is looming. See, that's a good story. It's a good story. And so there's destruction that's looming. And so we have this possible slaughter, and we'll look at this in weeks to come, this possible slaughter of the Jews is not just going to affect the Jews that's in Babylon. We read the first couple of verses of Esther chapter number 1, and we read about this kingdom of Persia that has 127 provinces. And perhaps next week I'll show you a map of the kingdom of Persia during Esther's day. It covered Jerusalem and Judea. It covered, in other words, whenever they said, we're going to do away the Jews, that just didn't mean in Babylon. That meant the lives of those that even made the choice to go home. The life of those that even made the choice to return to the promised land and to build up their temple and their walls in Jerusalem, they were threatened by the decree for the destruction of all the Jewish people. They were equally at risk as those that decided not to go home. And so we got to understand tonight the, the, the gravity of this possibility. And think here with me for a moment. Think here with me for a moment. If there was, and there wasn't, as is the case throughout much of, of, of Bible history, if there was the destruction of the Jews totally, then there would have been jeopardized the birth of Jesus Christ. And throughout the history of the Bible and beyond the Bible, you always see this attack against the Jewish people. You might see just one individual left of them that's carrying on seed in the line because Jesus was to be born, huh? particularly of the tribe of Judah. Amen. And so, huh, that's heavy stuff. But if they had been destroyed, I mean, there's the jeopardization of, of, of the birth of Christ Jesus. But you have this big mess, so to speak, and God works through a woman that stayed in a pagan land. And he devised and he worked through her reluctance, her disconnectedness from her roots, and let me tell you what that's called. That's called mercy. The same type of mercy that Jonah was receiving when he was disobedient and finally lifted up his voice in prayer from the belly of a well to get back on track. Mercy. Listen, folks. God, God can work. Brother, Brother Trout, when we read the Old Testament story, Joseph's in prison, right? He's been forgotten by the butler for two years. Who is it that has the dream concerning the years of plenty and the years of famine? 
Pharaoh, an Egyptian king, right? And Joseph is brought out of prison to interpret what Pharaoh dreamt. Yet what Pharaoh dreamt, he dreamed according to the interpretation that Joseph gave. In other words, there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. But God used an Egyptian king to give the dream to and Joseph to interpret it. God can work in some of the most unrealized places sometimes in the life of humanity, in our lives, and in the world. And so if he can use uh, an Egyptian king, if he can use a reluctant Jewish lady called Esther, if, and we could continue going down the line, if he could use, if he could use, then note well that he can use anyone and any failure in order to orchestrate his overall purpose. He can even use an Esther. God, God named, we do not, yeah, we're doing okay. God had named, again, and purposed the Persian king Cyrus. Again, 150 years before he was even born. Cyrus was used by God, and here's the thing, he was used by God, though he wasn't in a relationship with God. Amen. We oftentimes go to the Old Testament story about you know, Saul, even at times in a state of kind of being kind of off-center from the bubble, you know, <laughs> a bubble off-center, that when he fell among prophets, he prophesied. Cyrus was used of the Lord, though he was in relationship with the Lord. See what Isaiah says about this. Isaiah 45 and 4, he says, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee, the thee that is being referenced is Cyrus. You can read the first three verses and, and see See that deduced. I have even called thee Cyrus by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I know you. I know you before you even born. But you have not known me, nor will he have been in a relationship with God. But he's going to be used by God. This is not something foreign in Scripture. You can read in, in the books of wisdom in Proverbs 21 and verse number 1. And we sometimes even quote this. That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. This person that's in power and authority is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. And he turneth. Who turneth the Lord? He turneth it whithersoever. He will. God's got the hearts of kings. He raises them up. He pulls them down. He plants them. He roots them up. He's got the hearts of kings in his hand. And he can turn their hearts just like channels of water going through different branches and tributaries tributaries whithersoever he will and so if God can turn the heart of a pagan king he can utilize the paths of a delinquent non-compliant Esther now many probably already know this but let's just look at it God is not mentioned in Esther Not from verse 1 to the last verse. God is not mentioned in Esther. There is no recorded prayer in the book of Esther. There is nothing that alludes to any type of worship or praise to God in the book of Esther. 
There's fast that takes place in the book of Esther, but no prayer, no worship, no praise. There's some reasons, and these are the reasons why some people have a struggle with Esther's legitimacy throughout history, even from here backward, that the book of Esther, some believe, are not even legitimate. Some have even chose over the years not even to accept the book of Esther as being inspired by God because God's name isn't mentioned and there's no prayer in there and there's no worship. There's none of these things that we find in many of the other books that we have. And I stand afoot with this, and I read this the other day, and it, it, it hit a mark, uh, a chord with me. Michael V. Fox, not Michael, not to be confused with Michael J. Fox, okay. Okay, <laughs> Michael V. Fox said, it is more difficult to analyze simplicity than it is to respond to it. So everybody says, eh, it's, it's, just, it's just not the inspired word of God. But you've got to analyze it. Because just because there is no mention of God in Esther, and just because there is no prayer in Esther, does not mean God is not there in Esther. Huh? Because what seems to lack in Esther seems to be the fulfillment of the word of God. What, what we don't find in Esther seems to be a fulfillment of the word of God. Because you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 31 and God speaks to the nation of Israel. And he says, if you ever depart from me and if you go a-whoring after other gods and you, you ever want to live a life that's different than the life that I have stated and proclaimed for you, this is in Deuteronomy 31. He said, then I will forsake you. This is God's words. And he said, I will hide my face from you and the Bible says that the people then would assume that God was not among them. This is, uh, l let's read it, because sometimes the Scripture can do so much more than what pastor can do. Deuteronomy 31 and verse number 16, if we may. I didn't plan on reading this, but sometimes you look at people's faces like, is he really telling the truth right now? All right, Deuteronomy 31 and verse number 16 it's the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they have brought, and in that they are turned unto other gods. Look at this. So there's no mention of God, there's no prayer. In my estimation, it's nothing more but fulfillment of what God said would happen. He said, it will be as though I've hidden my face from you. You will even say among yourselves, is God even among us? Amen. But understand well that God does not need mentioning to exist in the affairs of humankind. All right? He doesn't need mentioning to be involved in the affairs of fallen humanity. Hmm? Many here tonight can attest to the fact that God worked in your life even when you were far from God. You can now stand at this juncture point and look over your shoulder backwards and say, you know what? I thought this was luck and that was coincidence. I was like, shoo, I can't believe that happened. You know what I know now? That was God. That was God preserving. That was God keeping me for this month. 
In that moment, you'd say, no, there's no God around here. But he was. Maybe not mentioned even in the book of Esther, but there are undeniable moments in the book of Esther that are the handiwork of God. Just real quickly. Okay, yeah, we're doing good. Yeah, yeah. First time back, we got it going, baby. Yeah. For instance, some of the coincidences supposed in the book of Esther, think for a moment. As we already mentioned earlier, like the middle of the book, the king can't sleep. And Haman's making gallows for Mordecai. The king has the chronicles read. In there he reads how Mordecai messed up an assassination on the king's life. He intervened, found out nothing was done for Mordecai, going to do something. When he decides to do it the next day, as Haman comes in, he says, what should I do for the man that I wish to honor? Haman thinks he's talking about me. He goes down this laundry list of everything that should be done, that the, the king's steed, and oh, the such should be done to the one that the king desires to honor. And he finds out that is supposed to be done for Mordecai. And then when it's all said and done, the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai, Haman is hung on his own gallows. Now look at all that in just a snapshot. Where's God? Well, I seem to see Him pretty clearly. His name's not mentioned, but His works are interwoven. Oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Can we just raise our hands? Man, I feel a witness of the Spirit here. Thank you, Jesus. Right? So just the common man with no God reference, no God base point says, look, I just looked out. Right? I walked away from that accident without a scratch. Who could believe that? Just a lucky guy. Carry number 13 in my pocket, a rabbit's foot on my... Keychain. Greatly mistaken. Because all those alleged coincidences that people even point to in their life, they're God's story of provision, saved and unsaved alike. And so before Haman and his plans are even introduced in the book of Esther, right of the slaughtering of Jews, before they're even introduced, God gets her placed in a royal court. And Mordecai has favor with the king. God had already made a way before a way was even needed. Mm -mm -mm. And if he's willing to do that for a detached Mordecai and Esther, I ask you the question, what's he willing to do for you that are willing to return? My God, I feel the Holy Ghost here. So she didn't return to Jerusalem. At first, she kept her identity hid. We read there's fast, but there's no prayers. And by and large, Esther and Mordecai seem somewhat assimilated. They have taken on and adapted to their surroundings. And if, if we start to think about it, the possibility, you know, she's in a harem of ladies that have one night with the king. Do you think they just had dinner and ate lamb's leg? Possibility immor immoral? 
But ultimately, God would shift her allegiance for the Jewish people. And Mordecai, look at this, Mordecai promotes Esther's loyalty to the Jewish people. Now, he's the one that told her, don't reveal who you are to begin with. And then he's later like, you've got to go in before the king. Me and you, we're going to be slaughtered if something don't happen. You, what's he saying? You need to reveal it. Huh? And so on one hand, it's like, don't tell him. On the next hand, it's like, tell him. And so he's, he's promoting now this loyalty, you know, to the Jewish people. Esther, if you're to hold your peace, he said, deliverance, it's going to come from somewhere else. He said, but you and your father's house, he said, very well, just might not make it. They're going to be destroyed. Now, Mordecai, everybody doing all right? We're just kind of going just a real broadcasting here, all right, just tonight. But and probably you might be at the spot of like, Brother McGee, I'm full, okay. <laughs> this is just what, 10 chapters, right, Esther? <laughs> let's see how long it takes. No, I'm not. I'm not trying to see how long. I, listen, folks, I don't set out like, let's see if we make this 100 lessons. <laughs> okay, that is not my objective ever. I just go, you know. All right, what happens, happens. So Esther has her problems, but so does Mordecai, Right? But God can work with them and he can work through them. This is going to come along in the book of Esther because we find out that Mordecai is a Benjamite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a resident in Susa. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now let's think for a moment why he might promote this identity thing for the saving of the Jewish people. Because there's a story in Judges, Judges 20 and 21, where the one tribe of Benjamin was almost totally snuffed out of the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, they, they come together with their stones, they put their stones together, and there was one stone lacking, it was Benjamin, because some of that tribe had done some just unthinkable things, and so the rest of the nation of Israel went and did a slaughtering party to the place there was only like 600 Benjamites left. It got down very low. Anyway, arrangements were made because they weren't going to give any of their daughters, none of the other tribes of Zebulun or Naphtali. Uh, 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 uh. What are some of the other tribes, guys? Manasseh and Gad. They weren't going to give any of their ladies over to the Benjamites in order to perpetuate their seed because all of the ladies had been slaughtered, see. But they made provisions so that they could have spouses and perpetuate their name. And so Mordecai's tribe, in essence, was kept from being totally snuffed out. Had, had Judges 20 and 21 played out and all the Benjamites would have been destroyed, there'd never been a Mordecai of the tribe of Benjamin. So perhaps Mordecai is going to bat for the Jewish people because Hyphen in his mind is somewhere in the distant past. Had someone not went to bat for my tribe, I wouldn't be here today. And so maybe he's trying to encourage the loyalty of Esther to the Jewish people overall. Because since someone safeguarded him, he wants to, in modern day terms, he wants to pay it forward. He wants to be there to safeguard someone else. Now, is everybody okay? Whenever Haman, I'm running, I'm trying to. This is fun though. When Haman approaches the king about destroying, and note, he doesn't come out and say the Jews. He says a certain people. He leaves it very vague to the king. Unnamed group of people. The reason, this is important, okay, the story of Esther. The reason he shares that these people should be destroyed, he doesn't lead with what's really in his crawl. 
that Mordecai doesn't reverence the office. He doesn't, he doesn't lead with that to the king. This is what he leads with, something else. Esther 3 and verse number 8, look at this. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people, a.k.a. the Jews, scattered abroad. Look, he's not leading with his disgruntledness with Mordecai. Scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces, all 127 of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse, which basically means different, diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws, speaking about the Persian king, your laws, king. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. shouldn't allow them to remain, to go on. Haman, this is what he gave as the reason to the king. Haman wanted the king to wipe out the Jews, this certain people, because their laws differed from their laws. If I say it like this, he wanted to wipe them out because the Jews were set apart. They did not worship the same gods that they worshipped. True Jew. Their dietary laws were different than the Persians. And so that stifled their social interaction with Jews and Gentiles. That kept them separate. They couldn't just hobbob and rub shoulders with the Gentiles all the time because they had different dietary laws. And that kept them separate unto the Lord. So what Haman saw and was telling the king, this is bad, amazingly, God sees as something very good. Therefore, listen to me, and I, I, I'm trying to get the, land, the plane just lined up just right. Esther really then answers this. How one survives in a foreign land. Watch me now. Because here is a Jewish, a Jewish community that's being threatened in a Gentile environment. Are you hearing me? Jewish community, let me put it in terms. A church in the world. Here's a Jewish community being threatened in a Gentile environment. There's a threat now to God's people as they live in this hostile culture in which they're in. However, we know through the story of Esther, they can be protected and they can be delivered there. But how? Listen to me. Not by how Esther's been acting for the first half of the chapter, or the book. Not by hiding her identity. Not by hiding her identity among the hierarchy of the world that she was living in. God has purposes for her to live her life in that context with her identity being known. See, God, God uses people that serve in the temple, and he also uses people that serve in capacities in the world. He uses the Esthers. She kept her identity hidden for the first half of the book, but then she begins to own it, and the owning it makes the difference between victory and defeat for her people. Esther answers the question then, how do you live? How do you live in the world? How do you live in a society and a culture that's hostile to who you really are? You live with your identity known, not hidden. Barry L. Banstra, in his book, Reading the Old Testament, says this. He says, the book strongly cautions the Jews to not forget their identity or think that they can somehow find safety by blending in, Mordecai pointed out to Esther that assimilating, 
or becoming like their surroundings, to, to define assimilating, was not an option, and her position at court would not ultimately protect her. You can stand with me tonight. I'm closing. The rabbis classify Esther as Haggadah, which is this, a narrative that is instructive by example in the way one is to live. Therefore, for us, for the next several weeks, as we study the book of Esther, the way to live is living boldly with our identity known rather than hidden. That's, that's the crux of it. If I were to put an overall statement over the book of Esther in this whole study, it'd be one word, reversal. Because we're going to see that from the opening verses, even some of the history leading up to it, through it. Reversal, reversal, reversal. Amen. And so that is our introduction to the book of Esther. Are you ready for the journey? Are you ready to take to a land far, far away in a Persian kingdom where there's banqueting night and day? Yeah, you won't find that in a pamphlet. Should make one, though. Let's pray tonight. Father, I come to you this evening. God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, God, for your word. God, your word is so, Lord, carefully and yet purposefully crafted. God, for us, Lord, and for every generation, Lord, before and after. I pray, oh God, today that you're able to help us, God, through this journey, Lord, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would teach us, help us, God, to be, Lord, encouraged and instructed and rebuked, Lord Jesus. God, corrected all these different things that the word is to us and for us and the tools, God, that it applies, Lord, in our everyday lives. God, to make us better, to make us more like you and help us, God, not to miss your handiwork and things. Things, Lord, that seem, God, that you lack and that you're not in there or you're not present. Help us to see the handiwork of, uh, of the ways and the works of the Master, even when we do not, Lord, perceive you otherwise. God, we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And the church say amen. God bless you tonight, Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.